Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. Please join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another good morning. Lord, we thank you for your word and for scripture. And as we open it up, that we would see it anew and that we would continue to see how you have just orchestrated all of this so wonderfully and woven it together. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. One of the principles in uh, leadership is that with leaders, good leaders, that they see more and that they see before. That's just kind of a short, kind of easy way to, to say it. Um, they'll see more of the potential of what could be, but they'll also see it before others see it. They, they, um, and, so, and this applies to all realms. This is business leaders, political leaders, church leaders, school leaders, uh, and all different kinds of levels. This can be just a few people. This can be in your home. As you raise your kids all the way up to the highest levels of government, where it's impacting millions and, and hundreds of millions of people. Um, let me give you an example to kind of help illustrate this, uh, just um, from, from ministry, just because that's a, a realm that I'm, I'm familiar with. So um, hypothetically, you know, a church volunteer comes forward and they say, you know, I think there's an amazing opportunity, there's an amazing need, there, there, there's amazing potential for uh, an after-school program, Right. Um, it could be really neat. The kids need it. I, I think the teachers would appreciate it. I think the, the parents would love it. I, I think it would be really great. Um, but, you know, we, we've not done one of these before, and, and so this could be really powerful. Meanwhile, other people, though, um, are around, and they're going, yeah, I don't see it. I don't, I'm just, I'm not sure the need's there. I'm not sure the volunteers are there. I just, I'm not, I don't see it. Um, so this person, right, they have a vision and kind of a hard task because they're the only ones see it um, because they see it before the others see it, right? And so they, but, you know, they, they get the momentum, they get the volunteers, um, depending on a number of factors, trust or history or relationships, um, you know, will we'll factor into getting that, that momentum going. So hypothetically, let's fast forward. Let's say that, you know, this person was able to rally troops. They did it, and 100 kids showed up. And everyone is thrilled. And everyone is pumped. And you even got a few people taking credit for it. Right? But, you know, everyone is all excited. That was a great, that was amazing. I'm so glad we did this. And then you ask the leader, wasn't that phenomenal? And they're a bit depressed. They're like, meh. It was okay. Because even though the leader is celebrating those 100 kids that showed up, the leader also knows that there was actually potential for 200. And, and they are excited about the 100, but they can't help but grieve the loss of the 100 that were not there. And this can apply to all kinds of things. This can apply to, to sales, that are sale quotas. This can apply to, to crops and harvesting. This can apply to, to the test scores for the kids you teach, uh, the games won for, for the teams you coach, uh, the responsiveness, you know, when, when you lead music for, for the church, right? Votes for a certain piece of legislation in, in the government. Good leaders will see more, and they will be see, see before 
for what could be, for, for what could have happened. So we're about to talk about Moses. And as we review Moses' story and then as we compare that to Jesus, you're going to see how Moses really saw more and he saw before the freedom and the potential and, and the promised land. He saw all of this that the people did not see. And because of that, it actually made for a very difficult experience for everyone involved. Um, so as Steve mentioned, we're in a sermon series where we're looking at stories, characters, events in the Old Testament, and how they paint a picture of the coming Christ, how they, they paint a picture of Jesus coming. Last week, we talked about Joseph. Uh, Joseph eventually ends up as, in Egypt as a slave, uh, but he's given an, an opportunity to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's super impressed, promotes Joseph from like the dungeon to second in the land in preparation for this upcoming famine. Uh, Joseph does a great job of managing that, um, but then out of that, he's also reunited with his family. His family comes to Egypt to buy some grain, and he's like, hey, it's me, your brother. Um, and then so he, so his whole family then moves to Egypt. That's pretty much where Genesis ends, right? The whole family has moved to Egypt. We're all happy. Exodus, fast forward about 430 years. Um, the Israelites have grown to estimates would say one, probably closer to two million people. Um, but future pharaohs actually enslaved the Israelites and made them do all kinds of labor. And so our story picks up, Exodus 1.8. I'll just read this to you. It's on the screen as well. Just kind of to, to get a backdrop here for Moses' story. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Come, behold, the people of Israel are too many, too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens they built for Pharaoh store cities, um, Pithom and Ramses. Uh, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field and in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So as the story continues, Pharaoh gets in increasingly ruthless in his dealing with the Israelites. And there actually comes a point where just out of this fear, where he actually gives instructions that all the male babies should be killed. The female ones can be allowed to live, but all the male ones should be killed upon birth. Um, so in Exodus 2, we, we read that Moses was born, and I mean, he, immediately his life is in danger. His mom is able to hide him for about three months, but eventually she's too big. He, he, he gets too big for that. And so, and many of you have heard this story, right? She makes a basket. She puts Moses in it, heads down to the Nile River, leaves Moses in a basket there in the river, hidden, and then leaves. She leaves her daughter to, to stay and watch the basket, but then she leaves. Now, the story moves quickly, and, and I think that, that they probably do this just for sake of time. But... But to just pause for a moment and think from a parent's perspective, right? I mean, moms, like your mama's heart, dad's, just your protective nature. 
Like your baby is actively hunted. And so you hide him to save his life, and things become so desperate that the only thing you can think of is to make a basket and leave him at the river and then pray what? Like, I can't, I've been thinking on this all week. I can't figure out what your prayer is when you leave him at the river. Like, what's your, what's your outcome on that? Like, what are you hoping for other than maybe like another 24 hours? Like, how desperate are those prayers, right? How abundant are those tears? Like, like the hopelessness and the anguish do you feel when that's the best thing that, that you can come up with? Well, I guess we'll just hide him at the river and pray that, I don't know, God does something. Exodus chapter 2. When she could hide him no longer, she uh, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with uh, bitumen and pitch, put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, Moses' sister, stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Because they, yeah. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, so this is Moses' sister, approaches Pharaoh, comes up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the servant girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away, nurse him for me. I will give you your wages. So she's getting paid. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, the best scenario is obviously that you get to raise your own kid. But given the circumstances, this is miraculous beyond imagination. Like, I I can't imagine that you go down and leave your child at the river and you hope, well, maybe royalty will find him and then I'll get to nurse him. And then I'll, like, this is beyond the best of what you could have hoped for other than raising him yourself. To have Pharaoh's own daughter adopt him? Again, the story moves quickly. Moses grows up in the palace. Spends about 40 years there. Has a bad run-in. Runs away into the desert. Spends about 40 years in the desert as a shepherd. In the next season of life, Pharaoh's going to take these 1 to 2 million people and he's going to lead them through the desert for another 40 years. Now, Scripture doesn't explicitly say this, but you cannot tell me that 40 years of exposure to the highest levels of government followed by 40 years in the desert, were not helpful in preparing Moses for that task. I mean, that is literally the best education and training and preparation that Moses could have gotten for that task. Like, if you were to just reverse engineer it and be like, okay, we got this guy, he's going to need to lead a couple million 
people through the desert for 40 years and it's going to be problematic. How should we train him? I know. Let's give him exposure to highest levels of government for a really long time and then let's send him in the desert so that he understands desert living for the next 40 years. Like it's literally the best prep. Many of these stories are familiar to you. Um, Moses is in the desert. God basically interrupts his life, talks to him through a burning bush, gives him this mandate to go and free the Israelites from slavery, uh, gives them the mandate, gives them instructions on, on how to do it. And really, this is where Moses receives his, his more and his before, where he begins to see this vision for what could be for, for the Israelites. So he goes to Pharaoh, and, and he tells Pharaoh, the, you know, hey, release the Israelites. Pharaoh says, no. Uh, and actually proceeds to increase the workload on, on the Israelites. And so the leaders of the Israelites actually get mad at Moses. Not Pharaoh, who has them in slavery and just made things a bunch worse. They get mad at Moses for all his crazy talk about freedom and then, and then the backlash that happens. Exodus chapter 5, verse 18. Um, this is Pharaoh talking. Go now and work. No straw will be given you. They would mix straw in with the bricks and then make the bricks lighter and you, you, it was just easier, right? No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh and they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge you because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So they're mad at Moses. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Lord, what have you done to, to this people or done this evil as people? Why did you send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people. You have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. It's hard when the people that you're trying to help don't want your help. And not only that, but they cannot see the good future that you can see for them. Joanne taught in Taiwan for four years. Education was highly prized. Ed teachers were highly prized. After that, she taught in inner city Wichita where low parents, low income parents had a dim view, almost even a negative view of education. And, and there, there's a book, I forget the name of the book, I, I should talk to Joanne about it, but it was kind of fascinating where they studied and they researched how different people at different economic levels approach higher education. And people in higher economic levels approach education. That's the place where you make the, your business contacts for later on in life. People in, in the middle kind of economic levels say education is where you go to learn things to, to get a, a good paying job. But there, there tends to be at that lower income family, there tends to be this idea that if you get educated, then you will leave. And if you leave, you will not stay here and take care of me. And so whether consciously or subconsciously, there is oftentimes this attitude of 
I need you to stay uneducated so that you will stay poor, so that you will stay in the inner city, so that you will take care of me in my old age. How many teachers and social workers and pastors and police officers and whoever else have walked into a situation and said, I see a future for you out of this mess. I I, I see a future where things are good and things are better and you can be free from the sin and the suffering and you can have a good life and there's hope in the future for you. And the people responded with, no, thank you. We like our life. We don't see that future. And in fact, if you could just leave us alone, we would appreciate that. And if you could just never come back, actually. With Moses and Pharaoh, what follow are the ten plagues. Uh, The ten plagues destroy um, Egypt economically. Some of them seem kind of weird, right? Frogs, gnats, river turns to blood, like just kind of odd stuff. Um, What you need to know is that in addition to economics, almost all of those plagues correlated with either a false god or a demonic god that was worshipped by the Egyptians. And those plagues actually showed Yahweh's superiority or his power over their their local worship god for instance let me read this to you the first plague turning the nile to blood was a judgment against apis the god of the nile isis goddess of the nile uh, Khnum, the guardian of the nile the nile was also believed to be the bloodstream of osiris who was reborn each year when the river flooded the river which formed the basis of daily life and the national economy was devastated as millions of fish died in the river and the water was unusable. Pharaoh was told, by this you will know that I am the Lord. So every, almost every single one of those plagues established Yahweh is bigger, better, stronger. The tenth plague is Passover. An angel of the Lord passed over every house in the land. Houses that had the blood of, the, of a, a lamb on the doorpost were spared. Houses without the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the firstborn died in the night. That alone is an analogy for the story of salvation. And so Moses leads the people out. He leads them through the wilderness for 40 years. And it's hard. It is really hard. Uh, there are people on the outside trying to kill them. He's got mutinies on the inside from within. The people struggle with sin. They, they struggle with wanting to return to Egypt. Um, and so from a leadership perspective, like this is just a really rough, brutal 40 years. It's interesting because it, actually early on, initially they go right to the promised land, right? Straight shot over to the promised land. Moses sends in the 12 spies. Two of the spies understand God. And they see victory. Ten of the spies only see the physical obstacles. And so they only see defeat. These 12 spies return. Two say, God is big. We can do this. Ten say, the enemy is big. There's no way we can do this. The the Israelites believe the ten. And so God sends them to wander in the desert for 40 years. Where that entire generation dies off in the desert. The people who first came out of Egypt were so stuck in a slavery mentality 
that God literally had to let that entire generation die in the desert, die in the wilderness, and it was their children born in the wilderness who were then able to enter the promised land. Slavery mindset, victory mindset, where are we, what's our culture, what's our church culture for us personally, do I have a slavery mindset? Do I have a victory mindset? As a church community, do we have a slavery mindset? Do we have a victory mindset? Moses leads them through the desert. Uh, at the very end, he dies in the desert, and it's actually the next generation, a guy by the name of Joshua, is actually the one to, to lead them into the promised land, and that is the book of Joshua. So how does all this paint a point? Uh, uh, how does all this um, Paint a picture of Jesus. Well, for starters, if you spiritualize the entire Exodus story, that is our salvation story. Like, like to the point where you could almost, like, I mean, it's just, it's remarkable. Just spiritualize that entire story. That's our salvation story. Stuck in the slavery of sin, we can't get ourselves free. A man appears one day, says, follow me. They're freed from slavery. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Steve actually read this. The New Testament actually says that when they crossed the Red Sea, they were baptized into Moses. The Israelites wander the desert for one generation, then they enter the promised land. We wander this earth for one generation, our generation. Then we uh, enter heaven, our promised land, all there. One author actually found 75 similarities or 75 parallels between Moses and Jesus. And that's not even like the Passover and all this other kind of stuff. Just Moses and just Jesus, 75 similarities. I will not review all of them. You're welcome. A couple of them. Scripture says that both were loved by God the Father. Both were hunted as babies with national leaders seeking to hunt them down and kill them. Both spent time in Egypt. Both were adopted. Remember, Joseph, Jesus' dad, basically adopted him. Um, scripture talks about both of them, and I'm not quite sure the, the right word, but almost like renouncing um, like the place they were, right? Like Moses intentionally left the palace so that he could associate with his people, Jesus, leaving heaven to associate with us. Both were called the free people. Moses had 40 years in the desert. Jesus had 40 days in the desert. Both are known as shepherds. Moses had his 12 spies, his 12 tribes of Israel. At another time, he sent out uh, 70. Jesus had his 12 disciples. At another time, he sent out 70. Both performed miracles. Both are noted for having meekness, faithfulness, prophecy, a priestly office, a kingly rule, being judges, notable leadership. Both ushered in covenants. Both did a 40-day fast. This is a lot. Let me just highlight three parts to you both are known for their prayer life and their communion with god exodus 33 7 moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp far off from the camp and he called it the tent of meeting and everyone who sought the lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp but whenever moses went out to the tent all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. 
And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. That's remarkable. And I think one of the remarkable things about Joshua, who was Moses' assistant, is often overlooked, and it's in that next line. But when Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. He would stay. He would linger. Both are known for meeting... um, Also, both are known for meeting God in a mountain and having their countenance changed as a result of meeting with God. Exodus 34, 29. Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And actually, it freaked out the people so much he had to put a veil over his face. Matthew 17. And he, Jesus, was transfigured before them because he's up on this mountain meeting with God, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus, obviously the most influential uh, person in all of Scripture, Uh, but in the Old Testament, and and really, I mean, you could make a pretty good argument that Moses is the most influential man, really, in the Old Testament. And both of them, for them, that that relationship with God, that communion with God, that fellowship with God, that prayer with God was a cornerstone of who they were, of their life, their ministry, their identity. Secondly, Exodus out of Egypt, the promised land, remains a significant part of Jewish history. Big deal, even today, Jews still talk about it like this is, this is a big deal, was a big deal. But Scripture actually speaks of a second exodus. Um, and Israel, the Jews, are actually experiencing that right now in, in history. Uh, it's been going on for a few decades. I don't know how much longer it will last. Um, but Scripture actually says that this second exodus will one day be remembered as greater than the first. And that's a, that's a pretty big statement. Uh, But let me point you to Jeremiah 16, starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, and now he's going to reference Old Testament Exodus, it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, that's what we used to talk about, but here's what we're going to talk about now. The days are coming when this is what we're going to talk about, but... As the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where we had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. We had a guy um, who would sometimes speak at Trek, and uh, I don't know what era this was, if it was maybe uh, the 70s or the 80s, um, but God called him to go behind the Iron Curtain. Iron Curtain was still up in Russia. And his ministry was to travel around to the different synagogues, and he was a Messianic Jew, and tell them, you need to get ready because the Iron Curtain's going to open, and when it does, you need to get ready to move. And, and you need to get, get ready to go. So he did that for a long time, has all kinds of KGB stories. 
Um, but then when the Iron Curtain lifted, then he was involved in a lot with organizing um, ships and planes that would actually take immigrants or refugees, Jewish refugees, from Russia um, down into Israel because Israel had reformed as a country in, in 1948. And, I mean, his thinking is that the land of the north was Russia simply because Moscow is straight north of Jerusalem. I mean, it's just, it's just a straight, straight shot. And so what we saw was we saw that Russia opened up, right, um, a lot of the Jews left. Um, incredible church planning and evangelism happened, but what we're probably going to see m- probably is Russia start to close up again and, and go hardline. And, and yeah, and, and this pro- so this process has already begun. As the Lord lives, who brought up the people out of Israel of the north country and out of all the countries where, where, he, where we had driven them. And this is not typically like a hot ticket news item, like you don't see this played a lot, you know, like on CNN or Fox News on the evening, but, but just watch for it and, and keep an eye open for it. And just so you know that this is not an isolated verse, Micah 2, Zephaniah 3, Ezekiel 39, Isaiah 11, Ezekiel 11, Jeremiah 13, right? Like I can literally give you one to two dozen verses that talk about God bringing back the Israelites from all the countries where they're scattered and bringing them back to Israel. For time, we're just glossing over it. But if you get into, into some of this more prophetic literature, it is just all over the place in, in some of these prophetic books. So this second exodus that Jeremiah speaks of has been going on for several years and is happening right now. Third thing, last thing I would point out, is just how, and God designed all this, but how, how, how Jesus really built on or continued what, what was given to Moses, kind of how, how he built on it, right? So um, in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God gives the law to Moses, to the people, right? And, and the law was God's instructions for holy living, saying, do this, but don't do this. But knowing that they were going to break a whole bunch of it, he also had to interject a sacrificial system. So it's like, well, if you do this, you, you sacrifice a pigeon, and if you do this, you sacrifice a sheep, and if you do this, you sacrifice whatever. And so this whole system is built up on all the offerings to make atonement for all the sins you committed in, in the list of do's and don'ts. It's interesting, Moses actually prophesied that someone like him would come in the future. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. And then Jesus says in John 5.46, For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words. And so then Jesus comes along and he starts saying things like, you have heard it said. And when he says that phrase, you have heard it said, what he's talking about a lot of times is Moses and the law and and what was going on. And, And Jesus proceeds to tell us that actually it's a lot worse than you realized, right? Like you thought it was bad if you killed someone, but I'm here to tell you that actually if you have like a private thought that no one else knows about, but it's a bad thought about that person, it's just as bad. And so the whole sin thing is a lot worse than, than you realize. 
And initially it kind of has this appearance, appearance that all, all hope is lost. Because if I can't follow the old law, what chance do I have of following all this other stuff that, that Jesus is laying down? But then this is where Jesus does the amazing. Because he basically says, look, that system of sheep and pigeons and whatever else, we're going to do away with that. Because I'm going to die on the cross for all of your sins, and we're just going to settle this thing once and for all and be done with it. And now salvation is no longer, have I butchered enough livestock? It just becomes all or nothing, faith in Jesus, yes or no, black or white. Our sin is much worse, more prevalent, with far greater confidence consequences that we realize but in christ the freedom we have far greater than we realize it's done it's over debt is paid change released it's over the cornerstone of healthy communion with god prophecies still being fulfilled before our very eyes like the second exodus and the way that christ fulfills and completes all that was given to us through moses on this last song, I, worship team, you guys can start coming up. On this last song, um, we're going to sing Living Hope again. I think we are, yeah. Um, and just reflect on these words. In, in light of Moses, in light of Jesus, and how they correlate. How great the chasm that lay between us. How high the mountain I could not climb. Who could imagine so great a mercy... What heart could fathom such boundless grace? Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your son Jesus Christ and all that is offered through him. God, we thank you for your servant Moses, how he was obedient to you and, and led your people to safety. God, thank you for these stories and how they uh, inspire us, but also just inform our day-to-day -day living. Lord, I pray for everyone gathered here that you would guard them, that you would protect them, that you would continue to give them a hope and a vision and a passion for the future, and that we would fall more in love with you every day. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care, and God bless.